The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. This morning we want to complete what we began two weeks ago. Looking at uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 12. This week is sort of going to be a um, sort of an applicational wrap-up to this series. We've spent two weeks uh, looking and in detail through verses 1 through 12 and, and sort of uh, gazing at this, this experience between Jesus and Satan in the the wilderness of Judea, right after his baptism, we're told by Luke, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And we have had that recorded there at the beginning of Luke, and we've looked at the details of, of what Luke gives us here as far as the narrative goes. We've, we've seen this encounter. We've seen uh, the, the, the sort of the three categories of temptations that Christ faced. And we've talked about them in detail. What we have not done really up to this point is, is brought it sort of to an applicational closing. And uh, we sort of ran out of time for that. So I wanted to set aside this morning simply for that purpose, to, to sort of round out this look at, at temptation and what it looks like to be tempted with sort of an applicational uh, ending to it. And so instead of uh, moving verse by verse through a new text, what we're going to do is sort of wrap up this series and answer really two questions, two questions that sort of come out of what we've studied the last two weeks. And the two questions are simply this, how is it that we as believers in 2021 are to deal with uh, Satan and demons? How are we to interact or not interact? How are we to regard or deal with Satan and demons. How does that piece apply to us? And then secondarily, what is a, a good, simple strategy for us in dealing with temptation as we face it? Not as, it, not as Christ faced it in, in, the, in the wilderness of Judea, but as, as it comes to us, as it comes into our lives, as it comes across our radar. What do we do when we're tempted? What do we do in those moments? And so really I want to orient our time together around answering those two simple questions. How do we deal with Satan and demons, and what do we do when temptation comes? How do we uh, respond to that? Does that sound like a good plan for you this morning? It's the only plan I've got, so it's where we're going, all right? So let's go down that path, and let's get right into it. How do we deal with Satan, and how do we deal with demons? We saw Christ interact with Satan, and as we walk through Luke's gospel, we're going to see, as Jesus goes about his ministry, he's going to, at other times, encounter Satan and demons. This isn't a once-and-done sort of an encounter for him. We're told at the end of the narrative that Satan goes away uh, until an opportune time. He goes away for a season, but he returns and his temptation of Christ was consistent, and it was uh, throughout his ministry in various ways, all the way up literally to his last dying breath on the cross. And so what we take from that certainly is this. If Christ was tempted and dealt with temptation, so too are the people who follow Christ, who, who, who identify with him. We too will find ourselves in the crosshairs of the same enemy, Satan, who seeks to thwart the work of God, who seeks to undermine the work of the kingdom of God, 
and who seeks to sideline and disqualify believers from the work of the kingdom. Though his end is determined, he's still active in the world. J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop, said this. He said, that mighty spirit who did not fear to attack Jesus himself is still going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The murderer and liar who vexed Job and overthrew David and Peter still lives and is not yet bound. If he cannot rob us of heaven, he will at any rate make our journey there painful. If he cannot destroy our souls, he will at least bruise our heels. Let us beware of despising him or thinking lightly of his power. It's a good warning and reminder from Bishop Ryle that Satan and demons are real and temptation is very real. So, so how do we deal with it? How do we deal with Satan and demons? Let's take the first question first. And I'll just give you a couple of bullet points here. We begin sort of thinking about this by just simply saying this. We need to recognize their reality, but not become overly consumed. Recognize reality, but not become overly consumed. As we've already mentioned, Satan is real and demons are real. They actively oppose God. They actively oppose his people. And they actively oppose the work of the kingdom of God among men. Thomas Brooks, we mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating, said this. He said, Satan, being fallen from light to darkness, from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from an angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy that he'll leave no means unattempted, whereby he may make all others eternally, eternally miserable with himself. He being shut out of heaven and shut up under the chains of darkness until the judgment of that great day makes use of all his power and skill to bring all the sons of men into the same condition and condemnation with himself. That's what Satan's up to. And there's a consistent testimony of Scripture that Satan and demons are real and that that's the kind of work that they are up to and that they're about in the world. They have delegated authority over the world's systems. That is to say they, they don't have omnipotent power like God does. Their, their authority and their power is delegated by God for a season and for a time, but they do have authority and they do have power, albeit delegated authority and delegated power. And they have power over those systems that run the world in which we live, the political systems, the religious systems, the cultural systems, are underneath the influence of Satan and demons. It's not hard to see that if you look around very closely at what's going on in the realm of the political, in the realm of the world's religious systems that are inundating us from all sides at what's happening in our culture and various cultures around the world. You see their influence all around. Though they have delegated authority, their influence is largely indirect. I would say that is a secondary piece. Satan and demons largely operate through indirect influence. They work largely through people who do their bidding, through, through convincing and lying to and twisting truth in the minds of people who then go out and operate and do what they would wish. They rarely reveal themselves in very direct ways. It's a rarity for that to happen. It does on occasion happen, but it's a rarity. 
I remember years ago there was a Christian artist by the name of Keith Green. Maybe you heard of Keith Green or heard some of his music years ago. But one of the songs that he wrote back in the 70s, I believe, was a song that was written, the lyrics were written from Satan's perspective, and the title of the song was No One Believes in Me Anymore. And it was a whole song from Satan's perspective about how nobody in the world really believes that he's real. And and the point that Keith Green makes in the song is that's precisely the, the realm where Satan likes to operate, where nobody believes in him. If you don't believe that he's real, he has free reign and nobody's paying attention and on the lookout for him. Frankly, Satan couldn't care less if you believe he's real or not. He's real nonetheless. And so they're real. There's delegated authority. It's largely uh, an influence that's indirect in the world. Um, And so we recognize these things. We become aware of them because the Scripture makes us clear about these things. But we're not to be overly consumed with them. We're not to be overly consumed with interest in Satan and demons. And I've seen this show up, ministry, in sort of a practical way, in really two primary ways. I've seen it show up in, in fear and fascination two different ways that I've seen an overemphasis on Satan and demons in the life of believers. In the area of fear, there are some people who are so concerned about Satan and demons that they live in sort of an abject terror uh, of Satan and demons. They're, they're, they're constantly in fear that they're under some sort of satanic oppression or satanic uh, uh, activity in their lives constantly worried about the enemy's work, constantly afraid that somehow Satan is after them, constantly paranoid that demons are in their living room or in their bedroom or in their bathroom or somewhere in their house. And so they live with a certain sort of a paranoia and fear of Satan and demons. Listen, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've entrusted your life to Jesus Christ and you're walking with Christ, you have no need to live in fear of Satan and demons. Absolutely no need to live in fear of Satan and demons. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes in verses 3 and 4, and he says this, he says, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've entrusted your life to him, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have no reason to be living in abject fear of Satan and demons. They can lie to you, they can tempt you, they can oppress you, they can agitate you, they can attempt to deceive you, but they cannot overcome you, they cannot dominate you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you as a believer, and he's not going to be evicted by some demon. That's the reality. No need to live in fear. Be overly consumed with them in that regard. But I've seen this come another way. I've seen it show up in, in, in sort of an, over, an overzealous fascination with Satan and demons, where people become overly fascinated with the demonic realm and Satan and demons, and they're constantly studying demons and demonology, and they're looking around to identify demons and name demons, I start talking to you about territorial demons and demons for this state and for this country, and so on and so forth, coming up with all sorts of new ways to oppose Satan and seeing demons behind every event that happens and every bush that they walk by and so forth. Uh, Again, this is not a place where as believers we need to live with an 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 overzealous sort of consumption with fascination with Satan and demons. And I've seen this be really destructive at times in believers' lives, in the life of the church in, in, in general. Probably 20 years ago now, 
or maybe a little, little less than that. There was uh, another Southern Baptist church here in Charleston who, who sort of became as a church, or at least a faction within the church, very consumed with this. And uh, I remember it very, very vividly. There was a woman within the church uh, with whom it all started who became overly fascinated with Satan and demons and demonology and began to influence other people along with the lead pastor of the church. And there formed a small group of, of people who... Uh, literally just ate, drank, and slept studying demons and demonology and exorcism and all sorts of things like that and con convinced themselves that they had some particular unique ministry of exercising demons and were going around Charleston supposedly uh, performing exorcisms and such. I remember it very, very, very clearly. It was way, way over the top and, uh, and it was a destructive thing. Uh, I watched from a distance sort of a close distance because it crossed my radar a few times. But how that all ended up is in a relatively short amount of time and it ended up splitting the church. There ended up being multiple people involved with this whose marriages fell apart and divorces. The pastor has an affair and is out of the ministry. And the whole thing leaves a trail of destruction in families and within a church. That's what happens when you become overly consumed and overly fascinated with Satan and demons. He lets you think you have the upper hand only to destroy I remember very vividly because the woman who was central to this was divorced and her former husband was attending the church I was pastoring at the time and they had children that went back and forth between mom and dad and I remember sitting in my office one day with this husband who was now remarried and had the children who had been bouncing back and forth and we were having some time together to talk about the fact that their children were having a hard time being at school because every time they walked down the hall they were thinking they were seeing demons around every corner and behind people and such and these poor little children were were terrified because of exposure to this kind of thing I'll never forget that and it was a reminder to me that listen it's a dangerous thing to become overly fascinated with Satan and demons there's no reason for a believer to ever go down that road whatsoever we're to be aware of their reality, but we're not to become overly, overly fascinated or overly fearful of them. As believers, our focus is to be on the Lord Jesus Christ and the study of his word. We're to equip ourselves with the truth. With what time we have to give, that's what we give our time to. There's no time to waste focusing on Satan and his lies. In Philippians chapter 4, the context is Paul is speaking to the Philippian church, and he's talking to them, and he's telling them, don't be anxious. You're, you're to be a people who, who live with the, the peace of God that rules in your heart. And in the midst of that conversation about not being anxious and about living with the peace of God ruling your heart and your mind, he says to them in verse 8, this, finally, brothers, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what do you do? You think about those kinds of things. Where do, you, where do you focus your mind on, not on Satan and on demons, but on the things of the Lord, the things that, that, that bring peace? You focus on Satan and demons too much, and you'll end up filled with anxiety, filled with fear, lacking in peace. Don't go there. We recognize their reality, but we don't become overly consumed with them. And then secondly, I would say this, we don't go looking for encounters with Satan and demons. It's a foolish, foolish thing to do. Jesus and the disciples, I think, are a great model here for us. Jesus encounters demons several times throughout his ministry, but he never goes on the offensive looking for encounters, or he never walks around demon hunting, if you will. He's very clear Christ is about what he came to do. He said, I've come to seek and to save what? 
that which is lost, right? He came to live a perfect life. He came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. That was the mission and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was laser focused on that mission. He went about that mission, and as he was going about it, from time to time, he encountered demons while he was doing his ministry. He dealt with it, and he got right back to his ministry. He never went around looking for demons, demon hunting. There are those who do that kind of thing today, the aforementioned people I talked about just a moment ago. Uh, but you'll run across folks who, who think their, their, their job is to go on these, some sort of offensive, and they come up with all of these elaborate schemes to, to go around the city identifying and naming demons and waging some sort of a spiritual warfare offensive. Uh, listen, w- when you see that stuff, run from it. It's foolish beyond measure. There is no biblical call for Christians to ever do such things. We don't see it modeled by Christ. We don't see it modeled by the disciples. We see no call to do such thing. It's a foolish thing because it underestimates demonic power and it overestimates human authority. Don't go there. There are plenty of things that the Bible calls us positively to do. It calls us to hide God's word in our hearts. It calls us to worship the Lord and to gather with his people. It calls us to pursue holiness and to pursue righteousness and to pursue godliness. It calls us to share the gospel with the lost. It calls us to disciple other people and to be discipled. These are the kinds of things that should consume our attention, never running around chasing after demons. So we're not to do that. So how are we to regard them? Well, we're to resist the devil. Skip to number four. We'll come back to number three. We're to resist the devil. We see that in James chapter four, verse seven. James tells us this. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So let's camp there for just a moment and try and understand what James is telling us here. The context of James four is James is writing, and he's writing to believers, and he's writing to particularly believers who are fighting and quarreling with each other. That's the context of chapter 4. They're quarreling. I can't say these two words for some reasons. Quieting and quarreling, I guess, is what I'm trying to say hard here. Uh, and James is, is writing to them in chapter 4. He's trying to instruct them on, on what to do about that and how to deal with that. And he recognizes within this fighting and quarreling that Satan has a role in the midst of church conflict. And among other things, they need to recognize Satan's role here. And what they need to do in response to that is they need to do two things. They need to submit themselves to God, and they need to resist the devil. And thereby giving us some sort of a template, at least, for not just fighting and quarreling within the church, but how to deal and respond to Satan and demons in general. The word, he begins by giving sort of a positive statement, submit yourselves to God. And that word submit literally means to to arrange under, to arrange our lives under his direction. It's a military term. It it means to, to be subject to. It's like a soldier who's expected to carry out the orders of his commanding officer. We're to, we're to submit ourselves underneath God's officership in our life following his orders. We're to orient our lives underneath God and his will for our lives. We're to to bend our will to his will. It's the opposite of oppose. It it means to stop resisting and to, to orient ourselves underneath God and his will, to submit before his lordship over our lives. To submit to God is to recognize his lordship, to recognize his ownership over us to recognize that he owns us and we belong to him and he has a right to rule us. 
It's to submit to him, to trust him, to be content with him, to obey him, to follow him. That's what it means to submit ourselves to God. When we think about how we're to deal with demons, our first responsibility is to positively submit ourselves to God. And then after doing such, we resist the devil. Resist the devil. It means to put up an active resistance to Satan and his influence. What does it look like? Well, we'll talk about that a little more in a moment. I'll tell you what it doesn't look like to resist the devil. And you'll hear people teach these things. It doesn't look like talking to Satan or running around verbally rebuking him. Have you seen that? Have you heard that? I quoted Martin Luther at the end of last week's sermon, and some of you were horribly offended. Um, I'm, I'm only kidding. Maybe you were, but you didn't tell me. But I think you were joking and didn't believe the quote. So I'm going to quote Martin Luther again in similar fashion in 1531. And I quote it because this was something Luther talks about. He talks about often quarreling with the devil and talking to him out loud and arguing and debating with him. At one point, and he's even said to have thrown an inkwell at Satan's head in his room. Uh, one of the things he said to Satan, and this was typical of the kinds of things Luther would say, he said this incidentally while on the toilet. He said, quote, I'm cleansing my bowels and worshiping God Almighty. You deserve what descends and God what ascends. So you can think about that later. Listen, regardless of whether Luther tells us to do such things, there's no biblical call for us to be arguing with Satan or quarreling with Satan or talking to Satan or rebuking Satan in some sort of a, a, a verbal battle. To resist the devil is not to do that kind of thing. It's not to talk to him. It's not to challenge him. It's not to go around rebuking him at every, at every call. And by the way, I give you those two quotes just as a reminder that because we quote uh, people who we sort of regard as heroes of the faith, uh, we, we don't need to idolize them and put them on a shelf as though they get everything right because they get a lot of things wrong too. Um, I have great respect for people like Luther and Calvin and other giants of the faith. They, they've done much for the church as far as helping us to hone our theology. We need to be very, very careful about how we regard them. They were imperfect people who got a lot of things right and they got a lot of things wrong. And I think it's worth reminding ourselves of that. Uh, Luther here gets this wrong. Uh, we have no reason to go around talking to Satan or rebuking Satan verbally or any such thing. Another thing that we, that resisting the devil is not, it's not uh, using the name of Jesus like a magic charm. Sometimes you hear people doing that. They go around saying things like, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, or I plead the blood of Jesus over this and over that thing, supposedly to get rid of demons. The common idea that's behind that is that somehow demons have to run away and flee when they hear literally the sound of the word Jesus. That's really nonsense. I think they get that from places like Acts chapter 18, or after chapter 16, verse 18, where we read this. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So there's a demon-possessed girl that's running around dogging after Paul the whole way. And finally, Paul has enough of it. And he says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And so there are those who take from that that the idea of resisting Satan is that we're to run around saying the name of Jesus at things, purportedly demons, and that they should flee and run away at the sound of that word as though it's some sort of a magic charm. 
But that's a total butchery of the context of Acts 16. What is meant here by at the name of Jesus is by the authority of Jesus or by the power of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. He says to this demon, by the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, which is all wrapped up in that phrase, the name of Jesus, his power and his authority, everything that he stands for and everything that makes up his essence. And Paul is saying to her, by Jesus Christ and his power and authority, you get out of the girl and it gets out. It has nothing to do with some magic in the word. Demons are not afraid of the word Jesus. You say, well, what do you know about that? Well, I don't know much, but I know Mark 5, 7. And in Mark 5, 7, we have a demon possessing a man, speaking through the man. And we're told this, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I'm pretty sure he wouldn't speak a word that would require him to flee at its very sound. That's not at all what we're to be doing. Demons are not afraid of the sound of the word Jesus. To go around doing that kind of stuff is dangerous. We have one good biblical warning about this in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we're told this in verse 13. There were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. You got it? These are not disciples of the Lord. These are not believers. These are itinerant purported exorcists who have come to believe that they can run around invoking the name of Jesus over demons and that they have to flee. And so, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, quote, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So the moral of the story is, if you don't want to end up running down the street naked and wounded, don't go around doing this kind of stuff, thinking you're doing something positive. That's not what it means to resist the devil. To resist means to stand against. It means to withstand it means to, to, to pose a, a defensive resistance, not an offensive attack. We resist the devil, and we're told he'll flee from us. As we resist him, he runs away. He goes about his business like he did with the Lord Jesus until an opportune time. And he comes back, and he tries again, and we resist him again. Some of you who've, who've had health issues with your heart have gone to the doctor before and you've heard those dreadful, dreadful words from the doctor. And those words are the words, you have to go on a no-salt diet. How many of you have had that experience before? A no-salt diet. Is there a more miserable diet on earth than a no-salt diet? And those of you who've had that and have gone home and tried to do it, you know that at first, it is painful. Is it, am I right? It is excruciating to go from having a, a diet filled with salt to all of a sudden eating food with no salt. And at every meal, there is an intense temptation to just grab that salt shaker and dump it on. Dump it on. That temptation has to be 
resist it, right? You have to resist it. You have to fight that temptation. You have to tell yourself, no, that cauliflower tastes great with no, bro- with no salt. I love it. It's like steak. You do whatever you have to do to resist that temptation, right? And you eat without the salt. And the next meal, you face the same temptation again, and you have to resist that temptation to grab the shaker. But eventually, as you resist the temptation, as you resist the temptation, what begins to happen? You begin to lose a taste for the salt over time, and that temptation slowly begins to fade away. And it's similar, I think, to what what Paul is arguing here, or excuse me, James is arguing. He says, resist the devil. When he comes at us, we resist, and at first it's painful because he knows how to tempt us in areas that hurt, in areas that are, that are tempting to draw us. And as we resist that temptation and choose to obey Christ in light of it, the more we do that, he flees and comes back around, and the temptation is hard, but the more we do it, the more we lose the taste for that temptation. And it no longer holds the same power over us. So we resist the devil. So what's a good strategy for doing that? Let me just give you three sort of quick points of strategy when it comes to dealing with resisting the devil in the area of temptation. Three simple things. Each one could be a sermon by itself, so it'll be a bit challenging, but we're going to do this. The first one is run. Just simply run. A good strategy for dealing with Satan in regards to temptation, run. Sometimes the very best strategy for temptation is just to extricate yourself from the situation immediately. Now, I understand that's not macho strategy, right? That's not macho. That, that, that's, not, that's not a very manly thing to say when temptation comes, I'm just going to run away. But sometimes that's the best strategy. I'll tell you this, it may not be macho, but it's effective. It's effective. The truth is, the longer Satan can get you and me to dwell on a temptation right? The longer he can get us to dwell on it, the more likely it is that we're going to do what? That we're going to give into it. The longer we dwell on it, the more likely we are to give into it. We think of Adam and Eve. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the Garden of Eden. Fleeing would have been a great strategy at the moment Satan came against Eve, right? The moment he came and began to hiss his lies at her, the best strategy would have been to just flee, get out of there. But instead, what does she do? She stays around and she begins to converse with him. Begins to interact. Continues to expose herself to the deception and to the persuasion via conversation. And before long, she's fallen. Listen, the longer we look at a temptation, the longer we think about that temptation, the more appealing it becomes. Right? I'm not telling you what you don't know. Two weeks ago, when I started this series, uh, the Friday prior to the first Sunday, uh, if that makes sense to you, the Friday prior to the first <laughs> sermon in this three-part series, I was at home with my family, and I, I, I made a, 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 a fatherly edict in our home. Dads know how we do this sometimes. It's not usually wise. But this one mainly pertained to me and not so much everybody else. I said, you know what? There's too much sugar in my world. I've gained some weight. I'm getting rid of sugar. I'm just cutting back the sugar in my life. And I think the rest of you need to do the same thing. But mainly it was me. But mainly it was me. And uh, two days later, 
I uh, preached the first message in this series dealing with temptation, right? Well, the week before, we had received an invite to have lunch after church with the Whitfield family, which we went to, and had a lovely, lovely lunch with, with uh, their family, wonderful time, and we'd eaten a, a great meal, and we were sitting at the table, and uh, Tim was right across from me, and my son Aiden was to my right, and Mrs. Whitfield was to the left, and we were just making lovely Christian conversation. And the next thing I know, I hear, Pastor Greg, are you ready for the brownies? I said, the brownies? Yeah, Alina made homemade brownies, and they're just coming out of the oven. To which my son, sitting next to me, whose eyes got that big, looks at me and smiles. He says, Dad, what you going to do? Those are his exact words. What you going to do? So he remembered what I said on Friday. And I thought, man, I'm in a bind here. I'm in a bind. And, uh, and uh, so I'm thinking about this. What am I going to do? About this time, the oven's opening. You can smell these brownies through the whole place, right? And I'm sitting there thinking about this, trying to ignore it. And the next thing I know, somebody comes and puts a plate in front of him sitting right next to me with this big warm brownie with vanilla ice cream on top, nonetheless. And now I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh, dear Lord. The next thing I know, I sit there long enough, somebody puts one in front of me, and now it's over. It's over. Aiden is over there. He's got ice cream mustache, you know, and he's looking at me, looking at that. And he says, what you going to do? And I said, well, see, I found a loophole. I said, we can't offend the cook. That would be awful. I wish I could tell you that I stood strong under the temptation, but I devoured that brownie with a fierceness of never devouring another brownie. It would have been wise for me in that moment, the moment I heard the word brownie, to get up from the table, to run out to the Atlantic Ocean and to dive into that salt water. That would have been the smart thing for me to do, to flee. But I sat there and I thought about it. And I looked at his and I smelled it. And then I saw it in front of me. And the next thing you know, it's gone. Now that's silly, but it's true. And it's sort of a template how temptation works. Fleeing is a good strategy. In fact, fleeing is often the best strategy. The enemy knows if he can get us to stick around and think about his logic long enough, he can get us to bite. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says to the Corinthian church, flee from sexual immorality. What does the word flee mean? It means to run, to run away from it, to get away from it. Don't dwell on it. Don't sit there and think about it. Don't keep yourself in the situation. Run, go, get out of the way. 2 Timothy 2, 22, Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Again, Timothy, run away from youthful passions. Get away from that stuff. Don't sit around and dwell on it and think about it. Go, run, get out of there. No better example than Genesis 39. Joseph in the Old Testament, you recall, is, he's a servant in the house of a powerful man named Potiphar has a beautiful wife, and she comes and grabs him by the, by the cloak and wants him to commit adultery with her. And multiple times over and over pursues him for this end and he at first resists with God's truth but she becomes so persistent that he has no choice but literally to run away in verse 11 of chapter 39 
It says, one day when he, that's Joseph, went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house were there, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. Now Joseph is not a superhero. He's a, he's a red-blooded man and the temptation for him is very, very real. He's, an under, he's, a, he's a godly man. He understands his limits. And so we're told in verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. Joseph understood this strategy for temptation that oftentimes, in fact, maybe most times, it's best just to get out and get away. Listen, Satan has a a sort of a custom cocktail of temptations that he brings into your life that are different than the ones he brings into my life. He knows your areas of weakness and he knows just how to come at you, just like he knows how to come at me. And there you know I don't know about you, but you know about you, the who, what, where, and when of your strongest temptations to sin. You know those things. You know them. You know the people that tempt you to sin. The people who gossip, and when you get around them, you just fall right in. The people who you find attractive that are not your spouse, and you know that when you're around them, you get that feeling, and there's a temptation to engage in playful conversation or whatever you know the people that tempt you to sin the strategy is get away stay away from those people stay away from that area of temptation get away from them don't put yourself around those people you know the places where you're vulnerable to temptation avoid those places avoid those places if you have to be there and temptation begins get out don't hang around don't keep yourself in a place where temptation persists you know, there are situations where you're vulnerable to temptation to sin. Avoid those situations. And if you find yourself in the situations, run. Run. If you're more vulnerable to temptation when you're alone by yourself, then try to avoid being alone by yourself. And if you're alone by yourself and, and you find temptation beginning to rise in your life, pick up the phone and call somebody that you know that's a godly person that you can talk to. Get your keys, get in the car, drive, talk to somebody, be around somebody. Run away is often the best strategy. Second bit of strategy is just arm yourself. Dealing with temptation is a part of spiritual warfare, and the Bible casts it as a battle, as a fight, as a war, if you will. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't really have time to work through verses 11 through 18. But in in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 18, it's a familiar passage. Paul talks to the Ephesian church, and he uses sort of a battle analogy for dealing with temptation in regards to the devil. And he says, put on the full armor of God so that you might stand. You might be able to stand. The idea is that Satan comes at you, he attacks you, and the goal is at the end of the attack to be able to still be standing and not be knocked out of the battle. If you're going to be standing at the end of the battle, you've got to go into the battle with the right battle dress. And he lays out for us some things that make up a believer's sort of spiritual armor, if you will. He talks about the belt of truth, and he says that we're to arm ourselves with the truth. We're to wake up in the morning and arm ourselves with the truth of God so that when Satan's lies come against us, we have some protection. We don't need to know all of Satan's lies. We just need to know God's truth to be able to identify Satan's lies, the belt of truth. He talks about a breastplate of righteousness. And he's talking about the idea of living our lives in such a way that we're living in obedience and righteousness to the Lord Jesus Christ. That living a life of practical obedience to Christ is a defensive measure against satanic attack and temptation. To live a life of outright sin 
and, and, and rejection of God's truth is to make ourselves vulnerable to more temptation. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is to say, we live lives in obedience to Christ. He talks about shoes that, uh, that are related to the gospel of peace. He's talking about the importance of having the right shoes. If you go into battle, if you're in the military, you know you don't go out there wearing these, right? You have boots that you put on because they're strategically made for you to be able to stand up in battle. And he talks about shoes that are spiritual shoes that are the, something related to the gospel of peace. And it's the idea that we go into the spiritual warfare that we face with the reality of the good news that we as Christians are at peace with God. As we, as we face temptation, as we face spiritual warfare in our lives, we're reminded of the fact that our lives, because of what Christ has done on the cross, we are at peace with God. God is not our enemy. He's our friend. God's love for us is never on the table in the matter of spiritual warfare. We battle Satan. We resist the devil. We do that and stand confident of God's love for us. We stand confident of his union with us and his presence with us and his commitment to fight with us and to fight for us. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? That's what Paul says. We're at peace with God because of what Christ has done. He talks about a shield of faith which is this idea of basic trust in God and his provision and his help. We, we go into spiritual warfare resisting the devil, understanding that we don't fight in our own strength, that we don't do it alone, that we do it by faith, that we operate by faith. We're trusting in his provision for the battle. Just about every one of Satan's attacks, and we saw it with Jesus, every one of his attacks is aimed at somehow getting us to doubt God or to distrust God and his faithfulness. So we go into temptation with this real sense of faith that God is with me and that he's for me and that I can trust him and that I need not doubt him. He talks about a helmet of salvation, this this. this this protection over our minds that our salvation is secure and that God will persevere with us to the very end. That we've been saved from sin's penalty, that we're being saved from sin's power, and that one day we're going to be saved from its very presence. And how we stand or fall in any particular moment, those things are not on the table. And then finally, he talks about the only offensive weapon, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've talked about that a good bit. Vance Havner said this, and it's worth repeating. He says, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. It is the word of God. It is our only offensive weapon in Ephesians chapter 6. It's what Jesus used. We saw this when he dealt with Satan. Every lie was countered with truth from the word of God. The sword of the Spirit. And I'll close with this. A last thing. Not only do we run, not only do we arm ourselves, we guard our thought life. Guard our thought life. Jerry Bridges says this. He says, our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts, once planted, are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. These actions are savored in the mind long before they're enjoyed in reality. The thought life, then, is our first line of defense in the battle for self-control. All temptation begins in the mind. 
And one of the ways that we resist the devil is we carefully guard our thought life. We pay close attention to what we allow our minds to think about and to dwell on and to ruminate on and to replay over and over. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, that's, that's the locus of the battle. It's in the mind, and it's in the renewal of the mind, and it's taking captive our thoughts, as 2 Corinthians tells us, that we fight the battle, that we guard our thoughts, we guard the thought patterns and the ideas and the things that run up in our minds. And we take captive every thought. We fill our minds with the word of God. We believe and accept his truth. We reject the lies of the enemy. We practice the truth. And we ask for God's help, the help of the Holy Spirit every day as we face the battle. That's what we do. And you say, well, Greg, what do I do? I, I haven't really been doing those things. I've been sort of falling on the battlefield left and right. Well, there's good news. The Christian experience for you and the Christian experience for me is a series of new beginnings and fresh starts. Our, we have, a, we have a, a living Savior who is was faithful and just to forgive our sins. And if we come to him with a repentant heart, confess our sin, he'll take our sin, he'll cast him in the depths of the ocean. As far as the east is from the west, we can get back in the battle today. Put on the armor, guard our thoughts. When temptation runs at us and it's strong, we just get out and run. Listen, let me close with this. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, cheer up, dear brethren and sisters. Take comfort, I entreat you. Look at the bright side of your position. Be encouraged to fight on. The time is short, the Lord is at hand, the night is far spent. Millions as weak as you have fought the same fight. And not one of all those millions has been finally led captive by Satan. Mighty are your enemies, but the captain of your salvation is mightier still. His arm, his grace, and his spirit shall hold you up. Cheer up. Be not cast down. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about these things, we all understand the reality of this spiritual warfare, this battle with temptation. We know what it's like. We feel its pressure in our lives in various ways and at various times. And Lord, we understand what it's like to feel like we've lost the battle. And even at times feel like we're losing the war. We know what it's like to, to fall on the battlefield, to be discouraged, to even be depressed at our lack of ability to withstand temptation. To begin to think that, that maybe you have abandoned us, to maybe think that our salvation is insecure, maybe think we don't have what it takes to be able to stand. I pray that if anyone has come that way this morning, that they hear those last words of Bishop Ryle. We have, a, we have a mighty enemy, but our Savior is mightier still. Many, many people weaker than us have fought the same battle, and Lord, you've never lost one of your saints. You're a Savior who perseveres with us right to the end and gets us home. And so I pray for that discouraged saint this morning that you would cheer them up 
no matter where they stand today in the, the, the fight against temptation, that you would cheer them this morning with the reality that tomorrow is a, a fresh day, even this afternoon is a fresh afternoon, that they can stand up, that they can put on the armor that you've prepared for them, and they can resist the devil, and they can receive your help. Lord, I pray for my friends and for myself that when it comes to this area of Satan and demons, that we would recognize their reality, but we would never become overly interested or consumed with them, but that our hearts and lives would, would that our heartbeat would literally beat with your truth and your gospel, that that's what would consume our thoughts and minds. And in those times, Lord, when we find that the battle is strong, Lord, I pray that you'd give us all the, the, the ability to run when we need to run to never be ashamed to extricate ourselves from a situation, to find people in our lives that we can pick up the phone and call, that we can go and visit when the temptation is hard and just be honest with them and find not judgment but support and help, prayer, a friend who'd have our back, who'd stand with us in the fight. Help us to be that for one another. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us even this afternoon to guard our thought lives, our thoughts, our, the ideas that we embrace, the things that we allow to spin and ruminate in our mind that pull us into areas of temptation. Lord, help us to fill our minds with the truth and allow not one inch of territory for Satan's lies that we might be able to resist the devil. And when all of his temptations have have come at us to be still standing. We understand we can't do this in our flesh. We can only do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would strengthen each of us this week for the battle that's to come. That when we regather next Sunday, we'd be still standing. For the one who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, as his Lord and Savior, help them to see, help her to see they're going out into a real battle every day unarmed. And they have no hope. The enemy is too strong. Their only hope is to run to the Lord Jesus and his shed blood on the cross that they might be forgiven, redeemed, saved, and equipped for the battle. May they run to you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.